This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. If you're going to have a podcast called Prairie Prophets, then by all means, you got to have the state representative on from Prairie Home, Missouri. Today's guest is State Representative Tim Taylor, who is the representative for Prairie Home, Missouri, and he's also my state representative. So, Representative Taylor, why isn't that bridge fixed on Highway 3? <laughs> now, look, that bridge is going to be fixed this spring. <laughs> the contracts have been signed, and all is well. Oh, okay. If the weather holds up. Now, look, I know it's been two years of perfect weather <laughs> to do road construction. So, inevitably now, it's going to be terrible weather through the spring. But, no, Highway 3 is going to get fixed. I appreciate that. You'll have my vote again. Thank you for sitting down with me. We're, we're basically neighbors in Missouri, but we're doing this podcast from Dewey Beach, Delaware. We're at the Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation National Association of Sportsmen's Caucuses. What is that? Why are we here in Delaware? So about 20 years ago, it was put together. A group of legislators got together and said, look, we need to be united across the country and vie for and speak for those issues which are important to sportsmen and women across the nation. Uh, We have a lot of commonality in those issues. There are many differences, as the networking has brought forth uh, over those years, but it's really that. It's just a a group of legislators, bipartisan group, uh, neither Democrat nor Republican. Uh, It's not sided one way or the other. Everybody's invited. And we just sit down and we network and we talk about the issues that are important to hunting and fishing and trapping and anything that's related to outdoors. And State Representative Bruce Sassman, who's also already been a guest on the podcast, is here with us as well, along with Jake Buxton, uh, Legislative Affairs Director for the Missouri Department of Conservation. It's a really good showing from Missouri. It's also a really good showing from around the country. It's interesting when we get to meet these like-minded individuals from coast to coast and you see how hunting fishing conservation landscape habitat management it matters across the board in these united states it does you know maybe the the habitat differs from east coast to west coast but the preservation and the looking out for that habitat whatever it may be is is a commonality that we all have being able to utilize that and understanding our abilities and our what us as legislators can do to affect that is important. Well, the landscape that we're worried about on this podcast, we're worried about all of them, but the one that really brought this podcast together is prairie. And prairie is one of the most decimated landscapes in North America. Basically, if you look at a, a cornfield or a soybean field in the Midwest, 150 years ago, that was very likely a native prairie. That prairie is now just a fraction of what it once was. And with the loss of that habitat, you know, we're seeing a decline in certain species, but we're also seeing detrimental effects to water quality. Nutrients from agriculture fields can run off into rivers and streams. So we have a plan to restore prairie along our waterways in marginal lands lands that aren't best suited for row crops, and then to turn that prairie into a feedstock for renewable energy production. So when we come to an event like this and we tell this story, people are like, say that again? (laughs) What was that? You're going to make energy 
from prairie plants? And we absolutely are. Not only prairie plants, but cover crops. So agriculture is really big in your district. First of all, tell people what your district is, where, where you are. Sure. So I represent the 48th district, which incorporates basically Cooper, Howard, and Sheridan County, and then the western third of Randolph County, so that area west of Moberly. The biggest town I have is 8,000 people, and that's Boonville. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be followed up by Fayette, which mm-hmm. you're familiar with, as the next largest. So without saying, my district is very rural. Yeah. Uh, yep. It's important. I was bragging on Howard County tonight as not having a stoplight. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but it, you're, it I think you're right. It I live in a county that doesn't have a stoplight. Doesn't have a Walmart. No, I'm I'm, I'm really happy about the stoplight thing. Yeah. I don't know where you can go in the country. There, I hope people are listening and they're like, you know, I know a county that doesn't have a stoplight, but I don't know of another county that doesn't have a single stoplight. I think there are at least one or two in the northern far reaches of Missouri, but... Uh, there may be. Greg Sharp, Representative Greg Sharp would have that uh, information <laughs> for you. That'd be great. So how important is agriculture to the economy of your district? Well, overall, across Missouri, it's the number one. It's touted as being the number one industry for Missouri. It is predominant for my district. Now, granted, we have some manufacturing in Boonville, and that's growing, which I'm so thankful for. But By and large, without question, agriculture is everything for our district. It's just, I mean, I just can't stress enough how important it is. Right. And here in in Dewey Beach, Delaware, agriculture, you know, isn't the number one industry. And I think that's what's so neat is we're blessed to live in this part of the country where we get to have this rural lifestyle. And maybe we take it for granted at times. I try not to, but some people... You know, it's like the the old country songs where the kid wants to live where the corn don't grow. You know, and but is that it, an old song? Yeah, I think it's an old. <laughs> I think we're getting old. Is the problem? Yeah, but it is. You know, it's such a beautiful way of life, and it, it's it's rooted in these traditional practices. So when new practices come in, adoption can be tough. What we have with the Horizon Two grant is a leg up because we, we've been able to acquire this funding from the Climate Smart Commodities Program to at least put 40,000 acres of cover crops and 40,000 acres of restored prairie on the ground as a, a trial run. So we can contract with landowners, we can contract with farmers to say, hey, here's a new opportunity in agriculture. We have the funding to make sure you're compensated well for you know, being part of the test run on this. And we've got five years to prove that there's a viable market for biomass being added to manure to make renewable energy. But the real reason for the entire program is the ecological and climate benefits that'll come from it. And before anybody gets worried about a global warming debate, we're just talking about the fact simple science that if land is left bare you know it's much more likely to reflect that heat back up into the atmosphere compared to when it's vegetated and those plants will absorb that sunlight and absorb that heat and then to be able to harvest those grasses and sell them you know for a profit 
to make energy. I mean, that's just pretty mind blowing in agriculture. You know, if I went back and talked to my grandfather's generation and said, we're going to grow grass and we're going to use it to power semi trucks, <laughs> you know, that would be a different, a different way of thinking. So I guess in your opinion, you know, how, how is agriculture changing? How are these new practices that you hear about in, in different avenues of agriculture, you know, going to impact the future of Missouri's number one industry? Such a, such a deep topic here. It is. Um, so I own a couple of farms. Uh, we are not farmers per se. Uh, I rent my row crop ground out. We raise cattle for a number of years, but I'm surrounded by friends who are farmers. That's what they do for a living. And I have a, a kind of jumble around here, but I, and as you know, I have an 18 year old son who just started college. His, his uh, passion or his goal is in conservation and natural resources, perhaps on the law enforcement side of that, but at, at the very least a conservation educator. So as he's been growing up and as we travel past and, and talk to the farmers who are friends and watch their farming practices and interact with them and talk about stuff and conservation being so important to us, as I would have him with me and we talk about this, and we still do today, we look at the farming practices that are going on and looking at that 300 acres of hilltop out there, you know, just north and east of our place that is a veritable desert. Uh, It's just completely void of any, this time of year, it's completely void of any vegetation whatsoever. And I told him, I said, Carter, I said, if you can do anything in the future, if you, you can help somehow figure out how to bring modern farming practices and the conservation method or the conservation understanding to farmers who are just trying to make a living, that is going to be a huge undertaking, but what a rewarding thing it'll be. So, and it really is just a matter of, in speaking with one friend of ours who, who was dozing some stuff around uh, across the, the road from one of our farms, and he was telling me just kind of offhand about how much money he'd spent to do this little three-acre chunk down in the bottom, you know, that really uh, isn't going to produce that much. And I said to him, I said, why, do, why would you spend that amount of money to do that? Why not leave that and set that aside and leave that to some conservation program or put it in something that's going to benefit? You're really not going to get that much out of it. Why would you put that much money into that? And he really couldn't answer. He's like, oh, I don't know. He hadn't really thought about, you know, it's just kind of a, a natural thing that they're doing that really I don't, I mean, I think I, just I, an awareness or an education. Yeah, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And let's just use the number 100 acres, and which is small, but or we could say 1,000 acres. If you, you have a limited amount of land from which you can draw revenue, if you're a farmer, and we all know that input costs continue to rise, mm-hmm. fertilizers on the up. Oh, man. And it's like you're at the mercy of the crop prices, the corn and soybeans. So you can't really control that. All you can do is produce as much as you can produce. So as a quail hunter, when you look at a fence row and you're like, man, I wish that farmer would just leave that fence mm-hmm. row brushy. But then you think about your own self, like trying to pay for your son to go to college. I'm trying to pay for my daughter to go to college. I'm trying to find ways to make more income. So that farmer's just trying to find ways to make more income as well. And his only resource is really that land. So if 
If they're not aware of the programs that are available, but even if they are aware of them and they still see like the opportunity to work more land as their opportunity to make more revenue, then I think it's just that simple. It's like, okay, I have this much land. If I can just squeeze one more bushel out of it, if Mm -hmm. I can squeeze 10 more bushels out of it, but it really might not be the best way. It likely isn't the best way to increase revenue because one thing that I've learned really from listening to Rudy Raceline, our CEO, is it's just as important to to focus on reducing your input costs as it is to increase your gross revenue. So by by not planting those acres that likely aren't going to yield what your prime acres are going to yield, you're not only going to be able to draw revenue from either a program like ours with Horizon 2 or be it CRP or another program that could pay you, you're also not paying for wear on your tractor. You're not paying for diesel. You're not spending your time that could be allocated to another revenue producing project or job, whatever you want to call it. So you really have to look at the big picture. You know, what am I spending to plant and harvest this acre? And what am I getting for it? And does it actually pencil out as my best revenue driving option? I think the the ability to let farmers know what the options are, just giving them the opportunity to think about things. There isn't a farmer I know, and I know a lot of them who who hate quail or who oh. hate who hate uh, don't monarch- say deer because I know some farmers <laughs> yeah, yeah. hate deer. Yeah, yeah, I know them, and I always <laughs> volunteer to help them. And I, <laughs> right. I I stand here before you today, volunteering to help you with your deer. You bet. Nope, I'll give you that one. So, but they don't hate they don't hate the monarch the monarch butterfly. You know, they don't no. they don't hate those things. It just it costs them money. It costs them time to try to to work around that. And there look, there are those out who are out there who will who will do things that are, that are obvious, and, and I think others will pick up on this over time. It's going to take a little time to, to yeah, do Yeah, I that. agree. I mean, the American farmer, I mean, it's so romanticized. You know, if you go back through the history of this country, the green tractors, you know, I mean, there's just so much to it. Like, as a kid, that's what we grew up playing. You, you know, you get a tractor, they put a tractor in your hands, and it's hard to become a farmer today if you're not born into that lifestyle, but... For the first time in my life, I have 40 acres and I've got row crop on my 40 acres. Now it's a a microcosm compared to the farmer that's got 4,000 acres, but I see erosion on my 40 acres. I'm already starting to think like, how can I combat that erosion? And then I think, well, that's going to be expensive, (laughs) like for me to fight that. But if I find out that there's a program that can help me, or if there's you know, uh, a native grass stand that I can plant that could then be harvested and then return revenue to me. Now my solution to my problem also begins to generate some revenue. Mm-hmm. And man, that's a, that's a win-win. Win. Maybe win? <laughs> like it's a bunch of wins there because it's a win for me. It's a win for the wildlife. It's a win for my neighbors downstream. I go back to some involvement in agriculture when I was still with the Conservation Federation with like ephemeral and intermittent streams. So we've got these streams that don't run all year, 
but we still have, I have several of those uh, and I now do too and and I see how they erode during a rainstorm so if nitrogen and phosphorus are applied to my land and it's running into that through you know the erosion that's happening it may just be sitting there today but with the next rainstorm it's going to be washed downstream and eventually makes its way into a, a non-ephemeral or intermittent stream, an actual flowing stream, and then it goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And with Prairie Profits, you know, we did a two-part television series. You can go back and watch it on prairieprofits.com or on YouTube, where we actually start in North Missouri. We start up by Brookfield, where the Grand River and Missouri River confluence is. And we travel all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. We go you know, down the Missouri River through Jefferson City to Herman to the confluence with the Mississippi, which I really feel like the Mississippi flows into the Missouri, but we got robbed on that. And then it goes all the way down. We, we went through like Natchez and uh, Baton Rouge and all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And we talked to, you know, some of the fishing guides down there. And we talked to Dr. Nancy Rabala about the hypoxic dead zone. So those little intermittent streams, those ephemeral streams that are not a big deal to us, when you add it all up in this gigantic Mississippi River watershed, which is like over a third of the country. The picture of that is amazing. And that all ends up down there in the Gulf of Mexico, creating a, a, a dead zone, like void of life. Like because of what we're sending downstream, it really makes those native grasses more appealing on a global picture. And then if you start talking about putting a little bit more money in a landowner or a farmer's pocket by simply doing something that benefits all of us, it's kind of a no-brainer at that point. Now it's just a matter of education and, and getting it out there. I had uh, my wife and I have a, and my mother-in-law actually have a farm that had 90 acres of set-aside ground, hadn't been touched in 26 years. Now, inside that 90 acres of native grass is the most beautiful stand of Cerecia lespedeza you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Thank you uh, to the Department of yeah, Conservation exactly. for bringing those and it was in. Yeah. Evenly spread, so you yeah. know that it was sowed right with the rest of the grass. So, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to expedite this this story. We needed to make my my mother-in-law's in a in a nursing home uh, with Alzheimer's, unfortunately, but we need funding for her. So we broke open 30 acres of that 90 acres, number one, to provide some income for her, but also to combat the Cerise Lespedeza because it's important and it's basically the easiest way to do that. So the farmer, which is a very close friend of mine who came to do that, when the time came of, of talking about what we're going to do with the crops, I said, I don't want, you, I want a rotational, but I don't want you to use any anhydrous on this ground. I said, this ground is living. I don't want to kill off those good things that are in the soil. And in that clearing process, he came in and I bought a tree puller for the skid steer and he's pulling trees. And he's like, I was, he said, you said that. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't think about it. But when I was pulling those trees and stacking them, the worms and the stuff that was living in those tree roots was amazing. And he said, I thought about what you said about not using anhydrous that we would use some other forms of fertilizer, but not anhydrous to kill that. So I think it's just the little steps of, of education that's going to really turn the tide and bring this to, to light. So 
and he is great about that. And that's obviously that's the reason why he's farming it is because he is open to those thoughts and those ideas yeah. about just thinking outside the box. I don't think I've ever met a farmer that doesn't love his land. Certainly. I mean, that is back to that romantic notion of, of just making your living from the, the same dirt that your father worked and your grandfather worked. And and you mentioned that. And the funny thing is, is that his dad, his dad's dad farmed this same ground when his dad was a young man. So that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. No, we're running out of time. I just want to make a statement about politicians because it's got to be easy now. It's got to be. <laughs> no, no. You know, I've, I've been around politics now for going on a decade and a lot of my friends, you included, have stepped up to serve. And it really bothers me when you hear somebody in the public say, oh, all politicians are crooked or they're all out for themselves or something like that. And I can tell you to the letter that 99 out of 100 might be a stretch. We'll go 49 out of 50, <laughs> 49 out of 50. That is not true. Like, why did you step up to serve? And what is it that you love about the role? It's easier for me to tell you what I hate about the role, but I'll try to <laughs> tell you what I love about the role. So I, I've spent my life serving my community. As you know, I'm a retired firefighter. I was a volunteer firefighter. I've been on the fair board. I've been fair board president. I've been on the extension council for university in Cooper County. I've just spent my life serving others. And when I retired from the fire department, I thought I still have more in me. I still have, I'm still young enough to do more. And the it was simply an opportunity. I'd always thought about that running for office and what the, what happened in the Capitol walls. And it was just really a stroke of, of a circumstance that I retired. My predecessor was terming out it just all worked out. It really was that. It, and it really, it's, and I know it's cliche, but it really is that I like to serve people. Mm -hmm. And that is the best part of this job. It's helping the constituents get through the bureaucracy. And it happens, gosh. And, and, and I say that like it's me doing it. My LA is a godsend. Yeah. If it wasn't for June. Legislative assistant. Yeah, my legislative assistant, who is a phenomenal and experienced person being able to navigate and helping our constituents get, get through the bureaucracy of, of government, uh, that's rewarding. The politics of it is the bad side of it. I hate that part of it, yeah. but it comes with the territory. So you just learn to live with it. So most listeners, you know, they can probably tell you who the president is. They can probably tell you who the governor is, but real quick, it starts falling off from there. Most sure. people don't know the first and last name of their state representative or their state senator. I encourage everybody to know who that person is. Those per that, that person is there to serve you and your community. And if you're lucky, you get someone as dedicated and as good as Tim Taylor. So thank you. That. Thank you for your service. Thank you for, uh, upholding the, the morals and values that I think we want to see in the state capitol and and I do believe there's more people like you than there are people not like you down there. So hopefully people can uh, look past what they see on the news and, and get to know their, their local elected officials, and we'll all be better off for it. So. Well, coming from one of my constituents, I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, now I'm just trying to butter you up so you fix that bridge. <laughs> it's coming, my friend. It's coming. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to the Prairie Prophets podcast with host Brandon Butler.